Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. Don't say sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues. I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where it's Saturday morning and we are just so excited because we know all the things. I'm Karen Peterson, <laughs> joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> well, we are like older now, so of course we know all of the things, unlike when we were teenagers, where we knew all the things but didn't know anything. Except for 17-year-old me would think I was way smarter than 45-year-old me. Be like, Oh, definitely. Yeah. She doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> she doesn't understand my generation. Like Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how are you, Lauren? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. It is it is hot here in New York City. It's decided that we've we've gone from kind of spring to okay, now it's summer, basically. <laughs> yeah it's weird how it's like it's almost like a light switch it just flips one day it does that here in california too um our our cold times aren't as cold usually and don't last as long but there's definitely like a day where someone just flips on the hot switch and we go from our mild winter to our oh my dear lord summer <laughs> so <laughs> and i think we're hitting that today i think it's supposed to get up to 90 so that'll be oh god fun. yeah but it is May, and it's to be expected. So, anyway, uh, do anything fun this week? N- no. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I was, I, was, I did not expect that question. Um, not, not particularly. No, just like working and things like that. I did, I did get to go see. Uh, Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Oh, what did you think? Yesterday, which I loved. I I enjoyed it so much. And I honestly, I, I did not read the book when I was a kid. That it, it was just not something that like I, it wasn't on my radar particularly. It wasn't on my parents' radar. Um, but I loved the film and I loved the fact that, you know, we're getting women getting to tell these stories. That's always nice. And how incredibly relatable a story about these like kids in the 1970s is to our current moment and is to like my growing up all of those things like it it was it was a wonderful film i loved it i'm so glad you got to see it it really is just it's delightful it's sweet it's it it, it hits all the right notes yeah it's a good movie so uh yeah i didn't really do anything either i just worked all week so (laughs) and a lot it was a lot of work i have taken on so many extra things and now I can't get my actual job done. It's becoming a problem. <laughs> but that's okay. That's all right. It's exciting. It's exciting times. Summer's coming. Semester's almost over. I'm going to take some summer classes just because, you know, I felt like I might get bored in the summer having, you know, not a million things to do. So I thought <laughs> I'd just have 500,000. So, but yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so before we jump into today's topic, we have two things that we needed to briefly um, touch on that we intended to talk about last week, but kind of lost in the conversation. So first of all, Boba Fett is dumb. And second of all, <laughs> Palpatine exploded at the end of Return of the Jedi and therefore Revenge or whatever the last fucking movie was. Rise of Skywalker is a bunch of bullshit. All right. Yes. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Two- to the Boba Fett is dumb part. I This has been explained to me before. You have explained it to me before. I understand why Boba Fett became like a thing, mm-hmm. right? From a marketing standpoint. But yeah. when you actually look at who Boba Fett is in like the few times he appears in the the films, he gets, he literally, Han like spins around, hits him on the ass <laughs> He flies into the side of a barge and crashes into a pit. It's a punchline. Yeah. Like, he's a punchline. It's a joke. It's a joke death. He is not 
some badass bounty hunter dude. Okay, so first of all, he was introduced in the Star Wars Holiday Special, which is notoriously disappeared from existence. You can find this on YouTube stupid. if you want to. But yeah, it like George Lucas has basically tried everything he can to disavow the existence of the Star Wars Holiday Special because it is so bad. It's hilarious. It is unintentionally the funniest thing Star Wars has ever done. And you should definitely find it on YouTube for the experience, just so that you can meet Chewbacca's brother, Lumpy. Um, yes, that is a thing. Anyway, so that is where Boba Fett was first introduced. And the only reason people care about him is because they, as children, got the little action figure. And admittedly, his little costume is cute. It's kind of cool. He's got a cool helmet, whatever. But they started playing with this character and creating all these fantasy stories in their own brains about him. And then, you know, the movie comes out and he dies immediately, which before he even gets hit on the ass by Han Solo, which is hilarious. Um, the first thing that happens is he lands on that little transport and immediately, the second he lands, is immediately um, disarmed by Luke Skywalker. <laughs> so it's like, this guy is just a joke. He is a joke. He is funny. And the only reason anybody cares is because they had the toy when they were a kid and they decided mm -hmm. that Boba Fett was supposed to be this cool badass. And then George Lucas tried to kind of placate that a little bit by writing him into the prequels and so on and then there's this whole stupid thing like oh he didn't die he fucking died he fell into the the pit he was going to be digested for a thousand years it was incredibly painful the dude died and also <laughs> so did palpatine both in the same movie by the way <laughs> well the the palpatine thing like and i know and it's been explained to me what is supposed to have happened in rise of skywalker but <laughs> palpatine gets blown up twice yeah he gets thrown darth vader throws him into the core mm -hmm. and then the entire thing around him explodes mm -hmm. so like if he was not dead the first time <laughs> after being chucked into like a reactor mm -hmm. he was definitely dead when everything blows up yeah like the I explosion just... <laughs> that luke skywalker almost didn't get out of alive because it yeah. just happened so quickly. <laughs> exactly. It's like he, he's, de he's dead. He's just dead. See, uh, on a more serious level, I do think that this is a problem when you get fans making these films now, making these stories, is that they remember when they were 10 years old and they were playing with the action figures. And it like Pop bringing Palpatine back really does feel like fan fiction. Oh yeah, it, it feels like the sort of thing that that I would have done with like my friends when I was eight years old, like playing with action figures, being oh, Palpatine came back! Oh my God, he survived the explosion! Da, da, da. Like all of that shit. It it feels it's like this is not real. This is this has no, this is something that kids make up, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's and you know what? That's fine for kids, but that's not what you should be doing in filmmaking and making of television like i don't care what your weird head cannons were when you were 10 years old and playing with your little action figures mm -hmm. yeah um and this is mostly a boy thing yeah girls like female filmmakers women do not do this when they're making movies like dead is dead this is very much something that that men do and I really, really encourage them to go to therapy and learn how to deal with grief and move on with their lives. <laughs> well, and, and also I think that there, there's, I've referenced this before, that there was an interesting, there's, there's been an interesting discussion about the difference between, you know, and the, now here we're getting into binary. So I apologize for being binary about this, but there's been a discussion about, you know, female coded fandom and male coded fandom. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been pointed out about male coded fandom is that it's very dependent on canon. It's very dependent on, you know, co trivia, on collecting toys, collecting memorabilia, uh, collecting factual things, right? And one of the problems with depending on canon constantly is that when something happens that you don't want it to, you don't have the outlet of I'm going to create fan fiction, which is what female coded fandom does, saying like, okay, this happened in canon, that was stupid, I'm going to make up my own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather you have these, these men who are trying to write their fantasies back into canon. 
Yeah. Um, and that's essentially what's happening with some of these things. And so like, so yeah, it's, it's just this, this, you know, like Superman isn't dead. Palpatine isn't dead. So-and-so is dead. It's like, I don't want this to end because this is a game that I'm enjoying playing. So I'm going to have to create a world um, that's a part of the, the canonical world in which this doesn't happen. Right. In which he comes back to life. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I've had this conversation with with men actually fairly recently where it's like, oh, but it's the, like the part of the excuses that I've heard is, well, it's a really interesting mental exercise to figure out how it could feasibly have happened. And it's like, but isn't it a more interesting? This is very much a difference, I think, between men and women. Um, but isn't it to me more interesting of of a challenge to figure out how to continue the world without that person in it. Like how to, mm -hmm. how to have the other characters respond to this loss. If it is somebody that you kind of regret dying, like, well, sometimes in life people die that you don't want them to, and they're not ready and it's not time. And like, how do how do you want? And taking that into fiction can be a really interesting and exciting challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think the women in our society are particularly because so much has not been made for directly for us. It's been made by men for men. Yeah. Um, I think that, and I, I think that this is true, like beyond just women, I think it's also true for queer people generally for, um, uh, for non-white people, et cetera. Absolutely, but yeah. there's so much stuff that isn't really made for us. And because of that, we have to kind of take those things and create our own worlds out of them. And I think that that's why we do get this difference between male coded fandom and female coded fandom, that the female coded fandom becomes this like, okay, this one thing that like doesn't really belong to me, but now I can make it belong to me. I could create a world where it does. And I, I think that a lot of men don't get that and don't get that opportunity. So rather than having this expansive view, they have a very narrow view. And they, like I say, they want to write the fantasies that they have, which are totally legitimate fantasies, um, into the the truth, right? The reality, whatever that happens to be, um, of a piece of fiction, rather than actually thinking about it in a more expansive way. Yeah. Exactly. So there you go. Both Fed <laughs> anyway. is dead and um, Palpatine exploded. They're both very dead. The thing with Boba Fett is just like not even like okay, I could kind of see how he would escape the sandworm. Maybe it's this whole he's cool. He's like no, he's not. He's not cool. Mm, no. And actually, I think that's more fun in some ways because I like heroes or antiheroes that are doofuses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's totally fine for him to be a doofus. For him to be like a total fuck up. I think that would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you like think, oh, he looks so cool, and then like look at how many. Beautiful people turn out to be total dumbasses. He's just like he's a doofus. He's, yeah. he's he fucks up all the time. Come on, enjoy that. He can be like, I don't know, you know, uh, the Charlie Chaplin of the Star mm -hmm. Wars universe or something. Yeah, it's great. Just enjoy it, embrace it, enjoy it, move on. And now let's talk about Anime Wong, <laughs> who is definitely not a doofus or a dumbass. Yes. She is magical and wonderful, and we love her. Um, I actually had not seen any movies that she had starred in until this week, so it's been a it's been a delight. Um, Anna May Wong, sorry, was born Wong Lu Song in Los Angeles in 1905, and is considered the first Chinese American film star in Hollywood. Uh, she got her start in silent film and transitioned over to talkies. She also did a lot of stage. She did radio. She um, even worked in television and all that. So she did a lot of things over her career. And um, there are a couple of, of things that because of the fact that she was an Asian actress uh, and not white, she definitely dealt with a lot of racism in her career and a lot of casting choices that were a result of her race as well. Um. Lauren, why don't you chat a little bit about the Good Earth controversy? 
So the the Good Earth controversy is one that I think a, a lot of people know, and there's some question about um, there's some question about what the controversy actually was. So the the good the Good Earth controversy has um, a, a couple of different questions attached to it. First of all, what the controversy actually was. So essentially, uh, Wong had left the United States in I believe the early 1930s, basically because she wasn't getting a lot of good Hollywood roles. And we're going to talk about, um, she left and came back to the United States a number of times. Um, but one of the things that she did in 1935 is she came back to the U.S. Uh, intending to obtain the role of um, Olan, who's the lead female in the film version of The Good Earth. Um, she was very like kind of pushing for this. This, this was the role that she wanted. Um, and... MGM basically was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and it's not incredibly clear why MGM decided. So this is 1935. This is postcode. Um, it's not incredibly clear why MGM decided that she was not allowed to, to play this part. She was offered the role of like the, the courtesan in the film, um, which she turned down because it was, it was another stereotypical role. The role that she wanted to play actually went to Louise Rayner, who's a white actress. And one of the explanations for why MGM was not willing to cast Wong in this part is because she would have been playing opposite Paul Muni, who's a white man, even though he's playing. So he's playing a Chinese character in yellow face, but he is the actor himself is white. Um, and and so this this was one of those those times where there's a lot of confusion as to what actually happened. And there's a lot of dispute over whether or not Wong was actually rejected from the part because of this concern about the code, the code had a quote, anti-miscegenation clause, um, which said that uh, you could not, you could not cast someone of another race opposite a white person and allow them to like be married, engaged, have a romantic relationship, kiss all of those things. And which would have happened if she had played this part. And which but, was part of the Racial Integrity Act, the law yeah. that Loving versus Virginia struck down finally in 1967. Yeah. So you have Wong, who is like, who at this at this point is a is a fairly well-known figure. Um, she has already been in quite a number of films. She's recognizable. She's been in European films, she's been in American films. Um, she's been around since the 1920s. And she is asking basically to play this positive Chinese role that she's being rejected for because she's Chinese, literally, because the rules of Hollywood is essentially saying that um, she is not allowed to play this part. And I, I think that it's one of those things that is so indicative of, first of all, the status of Hollywood at that time, but also the fact that Wong had a great deal of power, right? She, at this point, she had been going back and forth between the United States and Europe, um, and a lot of the time it was because she was not getting roles in America that she that she wanted. She was not getting the starring roles. She was being cast as kind of the stereotypical Chinese roles, either as the, um, quote, dragon lady or as the kind of wilting flower character who is usually madly in love with the white guy who turns out to like not not want her or whatever, because he goes after the the starring white woman. Um but Wong's, you know, this this whole back and forth about the Good Earth, which is such a problematic film in so many ways, um, really just kind of, I think, highlights who Wong was at the time and also her integrity and her like declining to play other parts, declining to, um, you know, to kind of fall into the stereotypical role when she wasn't being allowed to play the heroine. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. It's... <laughs> It's such a frustrating thing when you look at the, I think this is why some people now say, well, I just don't watch um, Hollywood films or old Hollywood classic films because of the racism. And it's like, but we need to understand these things that happen and we need to experience some of this um, now so that we can really understand, you know, like there's been a lot of conversation recently about the Hayes Code as if people want to bring this back, for example. And understanding what that did to so many careers um, and to the content and substance of films themselves mm -hmm. um, is really important. And so, so 
like understanding the history of a movie like the good earth, but also seeing the final result is, is really important to help us understand why it's so essential to not ever let these things happen again. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and also to recognize people like anime Wong who pushed back against mm-hmm. the stereotyping. Like, I think that that's one of the mistakes that we make and that a lot of people make about Hollywood. And I think, I think that or classical Hollywood, and I think that um, I think one of the things we have to remember is that even though you've got the Hays Code, even though you have the studio system, there were people working within that and working outside of it around at the same time who were actively pushing back against it. And and you see that in certain films. And I think that Anime Wong is a good example of that. And she's a good example throughout her career, even at the times when she's playing these stereotyped characters of how an actress can react to that and can do something different, um, even within this very restricting society, this very, this, and so, and some of it is, some of it is just pure racism, right? Um, it's the pure racism of the period. Some of it yeah. is, you f- it feels more like that there were probably people who would have wanted to push forward in different ways to be more progressive, but basically couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's definitely a balance within that. But that's something that we need to recognize when we watch these films and when we talk about them. And she's she's a great example of pushing back against stereotyping while at the same time basically trying to make a career for herself and making a fantastic career for herself um within this very restricting society right and she did have quite a career i mean she did a lot of film a lot of television and and just um some very enduring projects some of which are are finally start like uh, you know there's a lot of movies that she did that i'd never have seen and uh, that we haven't even really had access to and those are finally starting to to resurface now which is is great um there uh there were several that we talked about talking about <laughs> um for this week uh two that are on the criterion channel right now and the first one is piccadilly from 1929 um this one was directed by ea dupont and written by arnold bennett it's um it's uh, a silent film uh set in a nightclub in uh in london uh like in the piccadilly Mm. circus area of london and um basically you've got these two big star dancers at this club one of them quits so that he doesn't get fired and uh then the club starts to lose its uh its business its clients and they need to do something quick and they discover that one of their now former uh dishwashers Turns out to be a really good dancer. And so they hire her to come in and basically save the club. And that woman is played by Anna Mae Wong. So, uh, Lauren, what are your thoughts uh, about Piccadilly? This, this was the first time that I saw Piccadilly. And uh, I, Same. <laughs> I, it, it was, it's a really interesting film. Now, again, this, this isn't a Hollywood film. It's an English film. It was produced by British International Pictures. Um, and it was one of the periods where Wong left the United States being like, I'm tired of playing these stereotypical parts. Let me play something different. Right. <laughs> and and she she went and did a lot of stage as well. So she went to she went to Europe. She did stage, um, hung out with a whole bunch of people, including Lini Riefenstahl. Um, oh. <laughs> who's, apparently they were friends. Uh, to, to, to be clear, she was also, uh, Anna Mae Wong was very, like, active in the war effort um, on on the Allied side. <laughs> um, just I just want to point that out. But yeah, I was like, oh, she's friends with Lini Riefenstahl. Okay, that's interesting. But she's also friends with Marlena Dietrich, so. <laughs> um, but but so when, when it comes, Piccadilly, I think, is a really interesting film because it does... On the one hand, it does fall into some of those stereotypical things like you. So you've got the two the two dancers and then the man leaves. And I think it's interesting that in the context of this, the whole thing with him leaving is he's the attraction. Right. The the female dancer is not the attraction. And as because he leaves, the place begins losing its clientele. And so they have to find a new attraction, essentially. Um 
And I, I think that's interesting because that doesn't usually happen. Usually it's about like the the diva, right? The the female character who is the big star or whatever. And she it basically what turned it turns out that she's not a big star. Mm-hmm. Um but then you've got this kind of replacement coming in of uh Shosho, um who who's played by Anna May Wong and is on the one hand, there there is very much this, at least in the way that she presents herself to the white characters, I think there is this leaning into the exoticism, right? Um, the orientalism, the the kind of the sort of forbidden sexuality elements. Um, but then you get these scenes where she's like interacting with uh, her her Chinese boyfriend Jimmy, um, when she's interacting with, also with people of that she considers to be of her own class. And you get this kind of other side to her of that's much more human, much more like she's she stops putting on a face, basically. And she's and very savvy. Also, she's very intelligent about the way that she manipulates the um, the guy who's who runs the nightclub and who eventually becomes her lover. Uh, And she's very aware of like the what power she does have and how to use that. And so it's a really interesting performance. I think the entire film itself, I got bored partway through because, because <laughs> I was like, I don't want to watch these people dancing anymore. Please stop. Um, but there's some fantastic scenes. I think that's really well paced. Uh, and, and I particularly was interested in, there's a scene where um, Shosho and her, her like, lover white boyfriend whatever he happens to be go out in uh limehouse and they go out to a bar and she's like oh this is this is our piccadilly this is our club right and you see all of these different people of the same class but different races etc but there's an altercation that happens when a white woman begins dancing with a black man and that and and the way that shoshone reacts to that and how she kind of begins to separate herself begins to walk out there's this really subtle interplay going on about race and about racial relationships that the film never completely follows through on i don't think but is a very like fascinating undercurrent there's a lot of things about this film. i i had never seen it before either and um there's a lot of things about it that i just didn't expect um because it's something that probably a lot of people haven't watched and it is available on uh, Criterion, I don't wanna I don't wanna spoil what happens. Um but it does take a turn that I was like, oh, <laughs> this is not this is this has just become a different movie. Um but I agree with you. I think that it does get a little draggy. Um, especially like with the whole Vic and Mabel dancing thing it was just like okay yeah. let's move on let's move on with this and um <clears throat> but yeah i think that that what this film does overall is really interesting in um just to your point about um about class and about race um the way that uh i mean i don't i've never been in the the theater you know business or anything like that so i don't know but from my limited perspective, there's a lot of just like, uh, it seems like a lot of jobs hinge on on um, feelings and like, I'm mad at you, so now I'm just going to fire you and you're done. And, you know, and but then later they get brought back and this happens with Shosho. She starts off, she's in the kitchen. She's like distracting all of the, the workers in there and she gets fired. But then they decide, oh, wait, we need her and we need to give her a bigger role. So it was just kind of this funny, um, funny entry for her mm-hmm. into stardom, I guess, um, that just even though this movie is almost 100 years old, which is crazy to think about. Um, but it's just it's funny because it touches on just like the stereotypes of what I have in mind of how show business <laughs> sometimes works a lot of times works <laughs> well it is very much like you know it's that lana turner getting discovered at a drugstore yeah. sort of thing you know it's just like ah oh, that girl yeah get me that girl that's <laughs> it's that kind of you know um, yeah that but, like fantasy casting thing yeah <laughs> yeah but i i do think it's interesting again that 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 there's a race thing and there's also a there's a race and ethnicity thing but there's very much a class thing very much yeah um and and so yeah we are we're initially introduced to shosho when she's dancing for 
the rest of the kitchen staff mm-hmm. who all love her and are having a great time right yeah um but because she's doing this like a plate didn't get washed properly and <laughs> angered charles lawton who is there <laughs> briefly like he never comes back i was like that's charles lawton and then he's gone um uh yeah but but so you there there is this continuous throughout the the film there's this continuous emphasis on class yeah and and also the and the way in which race fits into that so it's quite clear that even though there are racial distinctions within the lower class that shosho exists in there's also um there's also more more equal relationships more equitability uh and and there's also more equal relationships in terms of men and women it's not solely women can actually have the upper hand in in the lower classes women can actually have power the the scene that i that i referenced where this white this white woman comes in and starts dancing with a black man she is the she is portrayed as being the one who begins dancing with him mm-hmm. um and the conflict when it erupts is very much not the black man fighting with the with a white man but the white woman fighting with a white man um, about her right, essentially, to to dance with whoever she wants to, and so there's there's a lot of really interesting interplay going on there about class and about the permutations of race within class and the permutations of ge- of gender within that, and it's much more equitable in the lower classes. Yeah, yeah, it's very true, and so I think it overall, I think it has some really interesting things to say. Um, even without saying very much because it is a silent film. Um, that was a joke. Uh, but no, I, th- I think that as a, as a film, it's, it really does dive into um, those issues very well. Um, and then the murders happen. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was laughing when I was watching it, not at the movie, because it's not done to be funny, but I was just thinking about, how a lot of people are like oh well you know this this weird idea that people have about wanting to like go back to the good old days even though they can't really define what the good old days are or why they want to go back there um but there's this sense of like oh there was just so much less crime and and people were good and stuff and it's like you watch any movie ever like 90 percent of movies involve murder and sex (laughs) And that's from the beginning of time. And I was just like, if this is in the movies, this means it was in society. So uh, I think you're fooling yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's and that's why I love, you know, silent films and pre-code films and I- including, uh, you know, quote, the, the censorship uh, system in Britain was different from the censorship system in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of, it's not, it's not exactly one-to-one, but um but those kind of earlier films, right, the films made in the teens and 20s and 30s across the world do go into some of these things that are much more like, you know, some of them are very sordid, but it is this desire to represent a lot of different things that were that are happening. And so, you know, in this in this one, I was kind of like, of course, there's going to be a murder. Like, of course, I should have yeah. I should have seen this coming. <laughs> like you can almost you see the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. But at the yeah, at, at the same time, it kind of reminds us a little bit. We talked about this before. It reminds us that there was crazy shit going on constantly. <laughs> um, and and it was being, rep, you know, it was actually being represented in film. The sort of the sanitized versions don't really come in in the United States until after the Hayes Code. And even then you get little glimmers here and there. Um, but this whole like sanitizing of the past is very much not shown in the films of the past until they're literally being censored and stopped from showing those things. Yeah. So um, anything else to say about Piccadilly? I think that in in terms of the films of hers that I've seen, it, I kind of I understand why she was she was going to Europe and wanting to have media roles, stronger roles. She's still kind of being pushed into these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here she's very much the like, you know, there, there's this whole she's the vamp, right? She's she's a vampish character. Yeah, um, she's she's definitely using her sexuality to get what she wants, which, you know, and we could talk about that in terms of the representations of women across film history, regardless of race. 
Um, but in in something like this, where it's it's interesting because on the one hand, she's not in the film for large sections of it. Right. There's a lot about like Mabel and Vic and then Mabel and, uh, you know, the the world of the club and all of that. And so she doesn't she's there and then she doesn't come back for a while. Um, but I think that as a screen president, she is so ob- she's so obviously a star. Mm-hmm. Um, she commands the camera. She gives a lot of she provides a lot of nuance and um really does in a lot of ways she walks away with the film like you're not really going to remember anyone else uh except for the fact that like the guy who plays um the the guy who plays the the owner of the club uh, a couple years later will play king wesley in it happened one night Mm -hmm. um and the guy who plays vic who's again like there for the first 10 minutes of the film or something like that the same year, I think, what the same year, one year later, also plays the the rapist in Blackmail, which I found very interesting. <laughs> but Anna Mae Wong is the star. Like, you can tell. You can tell from just the minute she walks on the screen, she commands it. Yeah. Yeah. I was really taken with um, how for this is a film from 1929. And I was taken by how crisp the, the images still are. Um, there's not a lot of of degrading of the film quality it was really good print i think on on criterion i really liked the the use of of color um which is something that fritzy kind of introduced me to as far as the <laughs> silent films weren't all black and mm-hmm. white you know and so there's yeah there's sections where it's sepia toned or blue or whatever and and those those moments really kind of highlight um sort of where we're at in the club um some of the emotional tones some of the um, some of the good and bad uh, moods that are happening. So I really liked that. And then um, I just I think the camera work, too. It's even though some of the the dance numbers got to feel a little bit long, I think the camera did a really good job of of keeping you feeling like you were part of it, like especially in the Mm -hmm. in the opening, like probably 10 or 15 minutes where you're kind of going through we're going we're being introduced to patrons of the club and uh, the dancers and you know everybody that's kind of there and it just it really feels like we're being brought along like we're just kind of walking through this club you know Mm -hmm. and and seeing all these things ourselves and I just I really liked that Um, so just as as a quality of a film I there were a lot of of artistic choices that I, I really enjoyed in addition to the story and the performances themselves. Yeah, it has a lot of, it does a very good job at, at portraying the opulence yeah. of the club and, and like, and uh, the, the opening sequence very much reminded me of some of the sequences in wings where, mm-hmm. you know, you've got mm-hmm. the famous one where it's moving through the, the dance hall, et cetera. But, um, but there are a couple of films from this period that are similar to that. And it's, it's the fluidity of the camera. It's the point, it's the point at which the camera has become a lot more active uh, and, and you get that more in kind of the, the late twenties where filmmakers are pushing further and further to see what they can actually do with the technology that they have. And, and this is just, you know, this it's 1929. This is sound has already come in. Silent film is beginning to move out. Um, But just the, the, the knowledge of how to use the camera, how to move the camera and how to really create this kinetic and emotional sense of the world. Um, that's very far removed from, you know, kind of what, what we sometimes associate with science, which is the static camera, the sort of, all right, we're going to photograph things like they're on a stage. Right. Yeah. So good film. Definitely check it out if you have the chance. Um, so now let's talk about another one that is also on uh, the Criterion Channel, and that is Shanghai Express, which is a 1932 American film. This one is directed by Joseph von Sternberg, and um, in addition to Anna Mae Wong, also stars Marlene Dietrich and Clive Brooks. So um, this is a group of people on a train in 1931. Um, China's in the middle of a civil war. Um, this is in between the two world wars, but there's a lot happening in this part of the world. And we have a whole bunch of people that end up on a train, um, 
the Shanghai Express. Um, I don't know how much more else to say about the plot, but Lauren, what are your overall thoughts about this one? I I, I think that we should talk about the plot because some of the things with anime long, I think, are very yeah. important. Okay. They are a bit spoilery. Uh, but are very important. But this this is like this is one of Sternberg's most well known films. Yeah. Um, and definitely like there are you know you there's there are times in this film where I'm like oh this is why Dietrich is such a star. Like there are the way that he films her at times is just like emotion like it's so emotional. You're like how she her she's smoking a cigarette. How is this? A- affecting me emotionally <laughs> um but it really does i think speak to to first of all her ability and also just sternberg's knowledge of how to light her and um and knowledge of how to construct everything i really love this film uh it's 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 funny and intentionally so like i like the fact that you've got all of these different characters i love these sorts of train films from this period because you get a lot of different people from different classes different professions different countries and they're all kind of packed together on this train and it it, it allows space for the character actors uh, who aren't, you know, Marlena Dietrich um, to really get to have, have a little bit of fun and to be entertaining. And they're all sort of, one of the things I like about this also is that they're all stereotypes. So in some ways it kind of undercuts some of the, the Chinese stereotyping in that you've got the sort of brash American who is constantly making bets on everything. You've got the sort of shady German. You've got the two uh, prostitutes um, who are very much cooler than everybody else. So you've got like these characters that are very, uh, they're very stereotyped to begin with. They're very A much Christian tropes. missionary. Yeah, they're very much tropes and they're shown to be real people as well. And that's something else that I like. But it it helps to undercut some of the more offensive aspects of the film in representing race and, and, and in representing Chinese people. It's uh, I, I, lo- I honestly love Shanghai Express. It's it's one of those films that I like just putting on and being like, oh, this, this is great. This is so much fun. <laughs> like, it's crazy, but it's fun. Yeah, it's um it's such an interesting film. This was actually my first time seeing it um this week. So, I had not it's just one I hadn't you know there's just a lot of movies that I just haven't gotten around to. And um yeah, this is one of them. So, it was my first experience and it was funny because you had messaged me earlier in the week and said something about anime Wong um uh, I don't remember how you said it, but basically about her like managing to just be even more like to really steal the spotlight i guess from from marlena dietrich and it was she's cooler she's cooler than dietrich yeah and that's hard Mm -hmm. that's hard to do (laughs) yeah yeah it really is so um i i i don't know what else to say about this movie other than that i just i love it and i want people to watch it i really really enjoyed it i'm so glad that i finally finally got to see it it's um i didn't know much about it i didn't read the plot summary i just know i just knew who was in it i knew this was von sternberg i knew this was like a kind of an essential movie to watch and i was glad that i went in not really knowing what was going to happen because there's some very surprising things um and even things that aren't necessarily surprising but i was just glad that i didn't know they were coming um just to get Mm. to to sit and just enjoy the experience of watching this film for the first time and um and i don't know the history of this time period in china very well so i don't know i can't comment to how historically accurate it was but um but i think that it really does kind of introduce the audience in a good way to um to sort of uh i don't know how to explain this um it, it just kind of i i really enjoy movies that give you a picture of of what things are like in other places like that you won't necessarily experience mm-hmm. um and does it in a way that's not just like oh china was big and scary you know it's like there's there's a there's a lot of humanizing elements to this particular journey i think um yeah i mean you get the the scene uh, there's a fantastic shot where the train is moving through a uh the outskirts of a city right and you've and it's 
and it's packed on both sides, just like people and um, animals. And like the train actually has to stop because there's a cow <laughs> tied mm-hmm. to the tracks and they're like <laughs> shouting at each other. But it it is it does a really good job at, at constructing this world that is, is packed full of people, is packed full of life and through which this this train is moving. And I, yeah, I like, I, I agree with you. I like that. I do think that there's, there's definitely an element of, like I say, of Orientalism running throughout yeah. the whole thing yeah. um, of this sort of like, isn't Shanghai, you know, Shanghai, China, et cetera, isn't it dangerous? It's, it's this dangerous foreign world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the majority of the characters of the main characters are not Chinese, right? They're white. Uh but but they're all from different countries and they're all kind of having different experiences as they go along. Um, but it does it does do a very good job at like constructing this world that surrounds them and at making us without going into long, you know, exposition or anything like that, and making us understand kind of what's at stake for each of the characters and what is actually happening in the world around them. Um, and that even includes Chang, who is such a, a disgusting and distressing character but at the same time like i i do think that despite the fact that he's a white dude uh warner oland actually does a very good job at, at humanizing the character mm-hmm. yeah yeah he's really good and and i mean everybody in this cast is great even like the smaller like the smallest roles everybody has a moment to just kind of shine and um I just I, I I really like how well developed this entire cast is, how natural it all feels. And mm-hmm. again, like kind of what I was saying as far as the camera work in Piccadilly, but in this one, the way that this film is constructed, it's like there are certain times where I just I kind of felt like I was just sitting in a passenger car with them and watching all of this happen. It's a very immersive film to me. It, it is. And I think that that's a lot of its strength that like the plot itself is fairly straightforward. It's not mm-hmm. like it is a difficult to follow what's happening at all. But the the power is definitely that we spend the first you know 20 minutes of the film basically being introduced to all of the different characters and getting them on their journey. Um, and and I like I like all of the things about language as well. The fact that no one except uh um, and I'm trying to remember the name of her character, Anime Wong, Hui Fei. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one except her on the train, other like all of the, the workers, et cetera, but no one among the main cast. She's the only one who speaks Chinese. So she's constantly translating for people who at the same time are contemptuous of her, one, because she's a prostitute and two, because she's Chinese. Um, and then you've got the French lieutenant who only speaks French and is getting into an argument with the American who only speaks English. <laughs> and like they're constantly assuming what people are saying. And my French is not incredibly good, but I did catch the line. At one point, the Frenchman literally says to the American, sir, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, but that that use of language and the so you've got Marlena Dietrich who is is German but she's speaking English. You've got Clive Brook who is like very English, um, and and so there there is this whole thing going on about language and about people communicating with each other, understanding what's actually happening, uh, and even the Warner Olin character Chang is there. There's this whole discussion about him being part white and part Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one time War- Warner Olin was known for playing the uh, uh, basically Chinese stereotypes. Um, it, again, even though he was a white actor, but uh, I think this is the only time where it's it's actually a part of his character that he's part white. And yeah. that and like and he even talks about at one point, I wish that I weren't. I wish that I was just Chinese. And it really insults this America. It's like, how dare you say such a thing, you know? But it, it does kind of feed into this complexity of race and of language that the film plays with a great deal. And does it in a way that's that's actually more complicated, I think, than we would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also really just um, drives home the point that rich white Americans are really annoying to travel around the world. No. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, just white People are just annoying around the world. Everywhere you go, <laughs> like we have a reputation for a reason. 
Um, and also that lady had a really cute dog and I wanted to pet the dog. She has to like go into the luggage compartment. And then at some point she just brings the dog out of the luggage compartment again. <laughs> and no one seems to give a shit. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all like, and then when the train actually gets stopped, right. And you've got all of the different reactions to what is going on. So like the American is like, well, they can't possibly keep us here. And the, um, the mission, the Christian missionary is going on about, I'm going to get in touch with my console. And at a certain point, I think it's only the prostitutes who are like, we must be in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's just so many fun details about about Shanghai Express. And a fun detail that I also wanted to mention was it was nominated for Best Picture, lost to Grand Hotel. It was nominated for Best Director. Joseph von Sternberg was nominated. He lost to Frank Borsage for The Bad Girl. And uh, it won Best Cinematography. Lee Garms won Cinematography that year. So, got to bring that's, in my Oscar trivia. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's talk briefly about Anna, Anna Mae Wong's performance. Let's in do. It. Um, because so this this is one where she and Marlena Dietrich, who are both courtesans, um, are are share a cabin and have, seem to be having an awesome time doing it, even though they don't really <laughs> talk to each other at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's important, actually, and, and spoiler alert for people who have not seen Shanghai Express, I do think it's important that we talk about kind of the outcome of some of that. Um, because so Marlena Dietrich is, is basically like offered the position of mistress of this, this Chinese general played by uh, Warner Oland, and... Um, and she refuses initially, at which point he basically has uh, Hui Fei forcibly dragged to his room. And it's implied that he rapes her. Right. Right. Um, and. The the entire. So, again, there are a lot of very complicated, I think, sexual and racial politics going on. Um, but one of the things that I like about. Wang's performance in this is that she's very she's very difficult to read right the character is very difficult to read but you get the sense that like as soon as she gets back to the cabin with uh marlene dietrich and she's like going to draw the knife and dietrich tells her don't you know don't do it um you're basically like no she's she's gonna kill him like she is 100 prepared to do this and i love the fact that not only does she kill him she gets rewarded for it Mm-hmm. she because she's actually done something good for china um and there's a fantastic line that she delivers so well and it's it's the the, the train has started off again and um the Dietrich character you know is just like oh i suppose i should thank you and she says i didn't do it for you death repaid his debt to me and mm-hmm. it's like holy shit man like you do not want to fuck with this woman i don't even know if she is if she is a courtesan but she is terrifying mm-hmm. like it, it's it's so good it's so badass and it's so like it's such it's so many ways it's the reaction against um you know the way that women who are assaulted or the way that women are who are um represented as sex workers etc are treated in these films she doesn't have a breakdown she does not um go off and and like get she's not even particularly upset she's just like i'm just gonna kill him right and then she does yeah she takes care of it and then it's done and yeah and it's a good thing for everybody Mm -hmm. so it's i i don't know she's just such a great presence on screen and again it's it's one of those things where her performance she commands the uh the screen so well mm-hmm. and you know that, so what i said it's just oh she manages to be cooler than dietrich she does yeah like and that's that is a difficult thing to do the fact that she is stealing scenes from dietrich in a film directed by sternberg is really remarkable when you when you actually take a step back yeah it's very true very true um, good stuff. Again, so Piccadilly and Shanghai Express, both available on the Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. And if you have not seen them, watch them. If you've seen them, watch them again. Definitely worth it. So um, any final thoughts about uh, about Shanghai Express? It's a great film. It is a beautifully shot film. And and I do have to say the, the version that's on Criterion Channel is gorgeous as well. Yeah, it really um, is. They did, again, they did a really good job 
restoring it. Uh, I know the criteria. I own the the um, Dietrich Sternberg collection. Nice. Um, and and it's it's a gorgeous disc. Like they did a really good job restoring these films. They're beautiful. Yeah. Um, okay. Did you have any other um, thoughts you wanted to share on Anime Wong's career before we wrap things up? There's one film that we didn't we didn't talk about, and I I won't go into great detail about it, but I do think it's worth seeing, and that's uh, Daughter of Shanghai from 1937. This is like uh, the the apparently they jokingly refer to this as the Anime Wong story when they were filming it because she had so much control over it. Hmm. Um, but it actually deals with uh, um, immigration and human trafficking, and a and a, a character played by Anna Mae Wong, who is, I believe, the daughter of a man in Chinatown, and she basically becomes involved in stopping human trafficking of these these immigrants, and she unites with Philip Ahn who plays a government agent. And so this is one of the very few films from the 1930s that actually features uh, East Asian American actors in leading roles. The two of them are fantastic together. Um, Philip Bon, I believe is, is Korean American. Uh, and they're just, they're just so, it's so well done. It's one of those films that is very surprising for the time period, but really, really deserves to be watched. I believe that Kino is going to release it as part of their Anime Wong collection, which they're finally doing. Um, but it is also available on like Internet Archive and uh, I think in various forms, maybe on YouTube. It's very much worth seeing. It's it's a fa- it's a fascinating film, like a little bit um, obviously showing that it's being treated as a B film, but the performances themselves are not B film at all. Awesome. Thank you. All right. I think that's going to uh, to wrap things up then. I think that's about it for this week. Yes. Uh, we would like to thank everyone for listening. We'd especially like to thank our patrons. Um, and they are Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you would like to be, be among them, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and sign up as a patron. Uh, if you do that, it gives you access to bonus episodes. We have one that we recorded a couple weeks ago that I promise is coming this week. It's been a lot. Sorry about that. Um, but we also give you early access to shows. We have some little goodies and things that we will send your way and um, more stuff that's coming. So lots of fun things if you are a patron and basically just are helping us keep the lights on, keep the podcast going. And we appreciate everybody's support. We do have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and our ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame We do also have a little button on our website, citizendamepod.com, where you can click and donate if you'd like to. And everything that comes in really does just pay for our hosting and and that kind of thing. So um, every little bit helps. Uh, We also can be reached if you would like to talk to us and tell us fun things. Uh, You can email us, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. Um, we do have a currently still unused Mastodon account. I don't even know if Mastodon's going to be a thing. It seems like it's kind of dying out. But yeah. uh, Citizen Dame Pod, if you want to find us there. Um, we also have our letterbox, which is a lot of fun. And we I think that's probably what we're using the most right now. And that is at Citizen Dame. And you can find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So that is all the fun details of where you can find us offline. Or online, actually, not offline (laughs) at all. Online, off the podcast. (laughs) There we go. Offline, we're not giving out our addresses. No, no, please do not show up at my house. (laughs) Unless you want to watch, um, I don't know. I couldn't think of anything fast enough. Uh, Anyway. Ghostbusters. (laughs) Yes, yes. Ghostbusters, Birds of Prey. Yeah. Um, All right. So that's going to wrap things up for this week. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Come in. Miss Wong, would you please go on next for me? 
Why, the first act is just gone off. I know, but something just happened. Helen Kane just sprained her ankle, and I pulled Jackie Cooper's arm so hard, I dislocated his shoulder, and you've got to go on next. But I haven't my public face on yet. Look, I'll go up and tell him to do an encore, and there'll be plenty of time. But have you decided what you're going to do? Well, let's see now. I think I'll do the Chinese poem. A Chinese poem? Yes. You know, the one that goes like this. Hon ye the land Yeah, 